Let's pray. Lord, before we lift up some specific requests about how we spend these next few minutes, I want to pray for Rick and Julie Prettyman, another pastor and his wife, pastor of Aldersgate Church. Lord, I want to pray for Rick that you would guard his heart from this becoming a job and just going through the motions and just getting it done week in, week out, but that he can be fueled by worship and wonder and awe and marvel that grace would reach so low for us in Christ. I pray, too, that he would be quick and weakly to the wonder of having the privilege of shepherding your people. Lord, I pray that his worship would, first of all, fuel his marriage, that he would be a husband that puts the gospel on display in the way that he loves his wife, that he would be the picture of what Christ has done for us in the gospel that Julie and the kids would see what the gospel looks like in the way that Rick goes about life. I pray that that would be his first and foremost ministry, and then secondly, behind that would be the ministry of Aldersgate. Lord, we pray for Aldersgate Church, too. We we pray for great things in and through that church. We pray for um, limited seating capacity for all that you would draw and grow and equip through the ministry of Aldersgate. Lord, I'm thankful for a brotherhood with Rick and a friendship with Rick. I'm thankful for a partnership that is tangible. And Lord, I pray too that in whatever way that that could grow, our needs to grow, that we would be attentive to that and we would walk in it. Pray that if we work next to folks that are part of this church, Aldersgate, if we live next to folks that are part of Aldersgate, that we can cheer for your glory in and through them and we can encourage them in their journey. Lord, too, this morning, we want to pray for a local official. I want to lift up someone who is indirectly connected to our body through Karen Bench. I want to pray for Andy Bench. Thankful for a relationship with Andy, albeit um, limited. Thankful to know Andy. Thankful to have some opportunity to interact with Andy. I pray for his work as a judge that it will be fueled by worship first. Trusting that Andy knows you, I pray that his worship will fuel the decisions that he makes that impact this community, that he would be guided by your truth first. Pray that you would use him to foster a context of peace so the gospel can be furthered and advanced and enjoyed in our community. Pray that he would be a light into this community as he enjoys you. Lord, I want to pray for how we spend these next few minutes. I pray for an attentiveness that's beyond us. I pray for the little kids that are in here today that aren't typically in with us. I pray for an attentiveness in them that the Holy Spirit can speak to their little hearts And show them little micro bites of great things so that they enjoy you in little, tiny, pure worship. I pray, too, that they will be quiet so that their parents can pay attention and engage. I pray for the rest of us that we will be attentive and hungry this morning, that despite the holiday and all the activities and all the distractions, that we can have a Holy Spirit-fueled attentiveness combined with a Holy Spirit-fueled clarity 
for me or through me so that your people will be equipped this morning. Pray that as a result of the time we spend together in these next few minutes that we will enjoy you more and be more available and more used for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. There are three primary passages this morning that I want to give you a heads up to, just sort of a map. It's not the only places we're going this morning, but I want to give you a chance to put a finger in a passage or put a um, bookmark, doily, whatever you might be carrying around in your Bible. Isaiah 9 is the first. That's where we're going to start and where we're going to end this morning, Isaiah 9. The second is Ephesians 2, and the third is Matthew 10. This is the last Sunday of an Advent series, and I don't even know if it's right to have an Advent message after Christmas. I don't know that we really talked about that. We just kind of assumed that for the month of December that we were going to celebrate Advent. So, This last sermon of the month is sort of rounding out where we've been for these last four weeks, and this is being our fifth Sunday. Last week, we looked at vertical peace, this peace between God and man that was earned and achieved and secured and offered for us, to us, through Christ. And this week, we're looking at horizontal peace, peace with others, a nice follow-on I thought about how important last week is to interpreting this week and thought about what it might be like where you go to the doctor and the doctor gives you a round of antibiotics and you start taking your antibiotics. This would be in case those who listened to last week don't listen to today or if you were here last week and you don't pay attention today. This is what it could be like. When you go to the doctor and you're like, man, I'm feeling really bad. And he's like, okay, here's a round of antibiotics. So you take your first half of the round and you're feeling better and you stop taking the rest of it. What happens? You get sick again. Sometimes you get more sick than you would have been in the first place. This is sort of the second round or the second half of a round of antibiotics. It goes together last week and this week. So if you didn't hear last week, know that everything we're going to consider in these next few minutes is dependent on what we considered last week. You can't get this week apart from what we considered last week. And we'll look at that here in these next few minutes. Isaiah chapter 9, I'm going to give sort of a little summary of these of how we spent last week because it's so dependent on how we spend this week. Beginning in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, I shared this last week. The tenses of this passage just make it difficult. This was written 750 years or so before Christ by Isaiah. He's writing about something here, though, that will take place later. He's talking about a few things that are going to take place later, but he's speaking about them as if they've already happened. Look at the tense of the first passage. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. 
In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. This former time he's speaking of hasn't happened yet. He's writing about it as if it's already happened because it's so sure. It's, it's a device that he's using that prophets also often use to speak of something that's going to happen as if it's already happened because it's that sure because that's what God said is going to happen. What he's saying here is that in the former time, they're brought into contempt, this land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. What he's talking about is the Assyrian invasion that would take place around 700 or so B.C. First under Sargon II, second under Sennacherib, the Assyrians are going to invade through Zebulun and Naphtali, that portion of Israel. And they're going to take Israel, they're going to take the capital of Israel, Samaria, and then they're going to come down to Judah and they're going to surround Jerusalem and lay siege to Jerusalem about 701 B.C. I hope I hadn't said A.D. It's B.C. That's context for what he's saying here, but he's speaking about it as if it's already happened. It hasn't happened yet. And then he says, but he promises, in the latter time, though, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. Now he's speaking of something that also hasn't happened yet, but he's speaking about something that's going to happen 700 years later when Christ is born in Bethlehem. Now, to those who are going through this, that may not seem like it's good medicine, but it's a promise that's going to be fulfilled 700 years later. And it's a promise that these folks could be nourished on, knowing that some good news is coming eventually in God's time, on God's terms, in God's way. That's context for this passage that's very familiar. We'll continue on in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. And here it's speaking of past tense, of Christ's arrival, something that's going to happen 700 years later where this great light shows up. We spent almost nine years as a church in the book of John, eight and a half years or so in the book of John. We dined, as you would imagine, on the book of John. What I found in the book of John is that John ate Isaiah more than any other Old Testament prophet. There's some themes in Isaiah that show up in John that make it very clear that they were friends. Now, they're 700 years apart, but they were friends in terms of what, as Isaiah wrote, John ate. Listen to these words from John in chapter 1. Chapter 1 is sort of a guide for the rest of the book of John. Listen to what John says in chapter 1. These are very familiar words. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Listen to what he says next. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Hint, hint, wink, wink. Christ is the fulfillment of what Isaiah was talking about here in verse 2. The people walked in darkness, but they've seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. And John says the darkness has not overcome this light that showed up. Man, those things are connected. In verse 9, he says, The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. I shared last week, if there was one single word that you could use to summarize the whole plan that led up to Christ, 
Christ's birth, Christ's life, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, Christ's ascension. It would be one word. If you could only summarize it in one word, it would be the word light. It's what Isaiah prophesied about. It's what John wrote about. It's what Christ fulfilled. The light of the world was born. That's what we've been celebrating all month. And in verse 3 of Isaiah 9, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when, the divide, when they divide the spoil. Now, you've got to remember the context that we're talking about of people here that have been unfaithful, of the people that we go back to the words there in verse 1, the people that are due gloom, anguish, and contempt. That's what they're due. They've been unfaithful since God basically called them into existence through the Exodus. They've proven unfaithful, and they're due gloom, anguish, and contempt. Yet here in verse 3, he's going to multiply this nation, not destroy it. He's going to bring joy to this nation. He's going to increase joy, and he's going to bring gladness to this nation. First, right off the bat, you got to, okay, now that's a scandal. That's going to tell me something about my God that I want to know, something that I need to know about my God. Unfortunately, I come in contact with so many people in counseling over the course of the weeks and months that have this view of God of this, as this cosmic killjoy, this waiting to just smash you like a bug. But you have to see passages like this and go, no, wait a second, that's our God. A nation is due gloom, anguish, and contempt, and they're going to get their share of it through the Assyrians and through the Babylonians, and then eventually Rome. But God makes a promise, a plan for glory, a plan for joy, a plan for gladness, and let's see how he does it. He continues on here with three fours, three fours that are clues to how he's going to bring joy and gladness to a dark, gloomy people. The first joy is in this first four, in verse four. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. We shared last week, that's referring back to Gideon's battle. It's referring back to really a pretty funny story when you think about it. I, I wrote in my notes, it's referring back to Gideon's army. I put quotes around, army, an army of pot-carrying, torch-bearing, trumpet-blowers, 300 of them, surrounding so many Midianites that they were numbered like the grasshoppers, like the locusts. And God used the unlikely things to confound the wise. God used the foolish things to confound the wise. God used Gideon's army as he's about to use what he's going to say here on the third four to bring hope and joy and gladness to a gloomy people. The second way he's bringing joy is in verse five, the second four. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. I shared the image last week. It would be like seeing an Indy 500 race car I hope that's what they're called, Indy 500. I'm not big into NASCAR, you know, Jeff Ott, that kind of stuff, and stuff Jeff's Ott didn't, you know. Indy 500 race car sitting on the tarmac, and you're like, man, that's bad, but it's got flat tires. 
You take a, you take a, a, a marine, a, a soldier's boots away from him, and you take his clothing away from him, and he's pretty useless. It would be like a tank with no armor and with broken tracks and with no ammo. Ooh, scary. That's the picture here of these that, that were these who are giving Israel a yoke and a staff and a rod. God is going to break those things. He's going to burn the boots of the enemy. He's going to burn the clothing of the enemy. And here's how he's going to do it in the third four. Here's where it connects to Gideon's army. The third four is, for unto us a child is born. <laughs> okay, a child is going to get this done? Yes, a child is going to get this done. A child is going to get this done because this is no ordinary child. This is a son. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. He is going to be a king. And his name shall be called four things. And each of these names has a divine aspect and a very human aspect. A wonder of a counselor. That's not an adjective. It's a wonder of a counselor. The divine word is wonder of a counselor. The human word is a counselor. The second one is a hero of a God. I'm going right from the Hebrew there. A hero of a God. Obviously, the divine word is God. The human word is a hero. But that's the kind of son this child is going to be. Hero of a God. And an eternal father is the third part of that name. An eternal father, like a good shepherd is to his sheep, this king will shepherd his people like a good father would for eternity. And then fourth, as prince of peace. The divine there being peace, not prince. They're earthly princes. The divine being peace. Last week, we considered the dark context of Israel during Isaiah's time. They're unfaithful. They are being judged. They are experiencing the contempt of God. Yet it's in this background that the love of God shows up in a child. It's a promise at this point, but it's coming. 700 years later, a child. A son, a son born that would be a king to his people, a wonder of a counselor, a hero of a God, an eternal father, and a prince of what they needed most, peace. More than anything, this people, this crossways people, needs something that only God can provide, and that is peace. Peace. And only this child could earn it. Only this child could offer it. Only this child could make peace between God and man. We considered last week that that word peace, that word shalom, is, means also peace, but it means fullness. It means wholeness. And we considered last week that that's what this child brought is he, and brings. He brings wholeness between man and his creator. It's not just peace, but wholeness. We become fully human. We become whole when we come into fellowship with our creator. And we considered last week, and we make no mistake about this, that he achieved this completely, wholly, and utterly 
through the cross. Period. He didn't come up and make it. He didn't make any other transaction. He achieved this utterly and completely and wholly with God the Father through his cross. That's what made peace between God and man. It's a shocking reality, especially around Christmas time, where there's so much conversation about peace. Peace becomes part of our language. You see it plastered across houses for those who decorate the outside of their house. You see it plastered across business areas, strip malls, peace. But do we know what's really talked about at Christmas? The peace that it's more about at Christmas time is about a vertical peace that's been earned and achieved wholly, utterly, and completely in the person of Christ. I was thinking about Luke chapter 2. Don't turn there, just listen. Luke chapter 2 is a very familiar passage to us around Christmas time. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. If you know the song, the song doesn't say it that way. It's glory to God in the highest and peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Notice that's not what our Bible say. It's not about worldwide kumbaya where we buy a Coca-Cola and we drink some of it and then we hold hands with every other person or all the way around the world and sing a song about this notion of peace. What Christmas is about is not this worldwide peace. What Christmas is about is the fact that peace has been made, earned, achieved utterly and completely through the finished work of Christ. So now we have peace with our God. We become whole with our creator. And Hebrews 4 says that we can enter the throne room, not on tiptoes, not like Isaiah looking for a crack to hide in the floor, but we can enter the throne room and enter the, the, the presence, very presence of the living God with confidence, boldly. Romans 9 says that we can now call him Abba, Father. The scandal here is not, well, there's first of all a scandal that we weren't completely destroyed that the nation of Israel wasn't completely destroyed. But the real scandal here is that God has made a way not only for us not to be destroyed, not only for, ways to, for a way to, us be, to, to be delivered, but for us to be invited in and accepted now as family. We can enter the throne room with confidence, and now through this finished work of Christ, not only do we have peace with a former enemy, but now we've become family with a former enemy. We called him Daddy. That's the shock of the gospel. Man, that's the good news right there. That's a wonderful scandal. A wonderful scandal. So what does this mean beyond shalom with God? What does this mean beyond being fully human and fully whole with our creator? It's got to mean something more than that or we wouldn't need this Sunday. We could have left last Sunday and just moved on. But this Sunday is about what happens next. That, what happened last Sunday, what I just summarized in the last few minutes, means that having been on the receiving end of a successful peacemaking venture, now we are to be about the work of making peace with others. And we're about to be, we're supposed to be about the work also of enjoying peace with others. We're about making peace and about enjoying peace. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. 
I don't know of a better passage to summarize what I'm talking about than this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. It completely shifts trajectories. If last week was about a vertical trajectory, about making peace with our Creator, and this week is about a horizontal trajectory because of the vertical trajectory, this passage, Ephesians chapter 2, does such a beautiful job of making that connection. It's Paul's message in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Listen to this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that would be the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. Hear the words of division and separation. Alienation, strangers, having no hope and without God in the world. That's not whole. That's the opposite of whole. You were at one time incomplete, Gentiles. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, we could say an incomplete, not experiencing shalom, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There it is. For he himself is our peace who has made us, watch the words here now. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. That word there could be translated contextually humanity. He's made a whole new humankind in breaking down the wall between Jew and Gentile. He's made a new humanity in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. See it again, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's what you experienced when you weren't whole with others. Hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. You hear the continuity there? The Jews' foundation is on the apostles and prophets, and Paul's talking to a bunch of Gentiles and saying, now that's your foundation too. You share a foundation. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple into the Lord. That's the church. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I'm going to tell you right now that you can't imagine any people that are more unalike than a Jew and a Gentile. You can't show me two people or two families in this community that are any more different than a Jew and Gentile were. Paul's writing to a church that's mixed with Jews and Gentiles, and he's dealing with the reality that they have been united through the work of Christ and made into a whole new people. Two people that couldn't be any more different. 
What they have in common, though, is Christ, and that's greater than any difference. It's greater than the sum of their differences when they have Christ in common. This translates, friends, into racial differences, it's written, which is what this being spoken about here. It translates into cultural differences, which is also what's being spoken about here. It translates into gender differences. Because, you know, when I say a Jew and Gentile couldn't be any more alike, I'm married to a woman, so I know that a really close second to a Jew and Gentile being very different is a man and a woman. <laughs> very different, right? But man, this travels. This message of what happened in and through Christ travels, not just for Jew and Gentile, not for black and white alone, but for man and woman. Man, this travels. This speaks to, it also speaks to personality differences. Say, man, I can't get along with that person because they're just such a different personality. I'm an introvert and they're an extrovert. And I say, you know what? If you have Christ in common, you have more in common than you, than you have different. Translates into value differences. I'm going to speak to that here in a moment. Hopefully, in this image of what Paul is communicating here to the Ephesian church, to some of the things I've just teased out, hopefully you can appreciate how unsavory it should be for us to even think about something like a Messianic Jewish church. The notion of a Messianic Jewish church would be like Paul showing up to the Ephesian church and saying, you know what, you Jews and you Gentiles, you're just too much different from each other. Jews, why don't you go have your own church over there, and we'll have a Gentile church over here. But Paul's making the point that the cross did more to bring you together than any differences you could possibly have. It makes peace between Jew and Gentile, black and white, rich and poor, tall and short, <laughs> man and woman, it makes peace. There's, I'm not going to say weird. I think it's kind of weird, but I shouldn't say that. There's some notions now about how to reach lost folks, about maybe making some church settings that are maybe church for young people, like a Gen X church, or like a church for young couples. Maybe if we have a church that just has a bunch of young couples, then we'll appeal to more young couples, and our church will become a larger church of young couples. Hopefully you see how unsavory that notion is because of what was achieved through the cross. The cross brings together widow and orphan and family of two, family of one, family of 12, rich, poor, black, white, Jew, Gentile, man and woman. He earned peace for us. We should not be going to any efforts to then divide us. That's not reaching lostness. That's undoing what the cross has done for us. Man, we should never th have even entertained the notion of church being divided off in little age-graded or even race-sectioned people. Man, the church is a mix of everyone because the cross brings us together, gives us more in common than any differences we may have. And then Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 says this. It's a good word. Eager, Paul wants them to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word maintain tells us that what Christ achieved and earned through the cross is not something that we have to now earn, thankfully, because we couldn't do it. But it is something that we maintain. 
It is something that we have to put our hand to. It is work to maintain the bond of unity and of peace. Maintenance is work. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is a little teaser for where we're going in a few minutes. Not everybody's up for that. Not everybody's up for that. Now, I want to show you something else in this Ephesians 2 passage that I think is important. I don't ever want to assume this because it would be dangerous to assume it. I want to show you how central Christ and his work is to this horizontal peace. That's why it's more than a Christmas notion and more than a song and a Coca-Cola. I want to show you just from this passage that I read and tease out a few things in verse 11 first. Therefore, the word therefore points back to the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. I don't know if there's a passage in our Bible that as beautifully summarizes the gospel as Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together in Christ. He's raised us up with Christ. His resurrection on that Sunday morning 2,000 years ago is your resurrection. And not only did he raise us up and spare us death, but now he's seated us with the victor. And none of that's been because of any of our work, but it's been because of grace through faith. It's a wonderful message, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And that, therefore, is pointing back to it when he starts to talk about this peace between Jew and Gentile. Because of that work that Christ did, because of what he did through the cross, now there's peace between Jew and and Gentile, look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's no multiple choice possibility there for how peace happens between a Jew and a Gentile or a man and a woman are two different races, are two different socioeconomic groups. The only thing, and it's central right here, is the blood of Jesus Christ, period. I'm not going to assume that for one moment. And I'm not going to assume that you know that. We need to be reminded of that every single week because we go about plenty of peace ventures that don't involve Christ at all. And then we're confused and scratching our head when we don't achieve it. Central to this peacemaking work is Christ. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace. That word, or those two words, he himself there, is a Greek device that Paul is using to call attention to the reality that it is Christ himself. He himself is our peace. It's, it's, he's making a point of emphasis there. He himself is our peace. You won't find peace apart from he himself. Paul's emphasizing it. I'm going to emphasize it. He himself is our peace who's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And then look at verse 16. And that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. Some of you might be thinking, man, you're kind of beating a dead horse there. Okay, we got it. No, you don't have it. You need to hear it week after week after week that peace is made exclusively and utterly through the work of the cross, period. Now, there might be some other things that are made through some other things, but when we're talking about peace as defined from our Bible, and I'm going to hit that here in a moment, that is achieved utterly and only through Christ and his work. The work of Christ, what I want you to see from this is how we define peace. I didn't go to, to uh, 
what's the, the, the dictionary? Webster's. I didn't go to Webster's and say, man, let me see what, how Webster's defines peace. That would have been a nice contrast because I bet it doesn't say anything about Jesus. You need to know that we as God's people who, are, who have a different worldview than the rest of the world, our worldview is developed through this book right here. It's how we see things. It's how we define things. And it should be how we define peace through what is being communicated right here. And what Paul is saying, what God is saying through plenty others, is that peace apart from Christ, there's no such thing. Peace can only be achieved between God and man and between man and man through the cross, through the finished work of Christ. You can't define peace apart from Christ because he's the prince of it. Remember, he secured it. He earned it, and he offers it. It's the only place where you can find it. Peace is defined and secured by Christ and his cross. They are inextricably linked. Big word, big preacher word inextricably linked. So let me tell you this. So the absence of conflict is not the same thing as peace. The absence of conflict is not the same thing as peace. See, lost people can experience the absence of conflict. A husband and wife who are lost, who have no clue who Jesus is, can learn through enduring life with each other, how to avoid pushing each other's buttons. And they can experience the absence of conflict. But that's not what we're talking about right here. We're talking about Christ-central, cross-earning peace. The absence of conflict and peace are not the same thing. That's so important to where we're going to go here in a moment. See, when we hear peace, we think absence of conflict. And the reality, biblical peace might make for a lot of conflict before it actually makes peace like we would hope. And in some cases, it may never make the absence of conflict. We'll look at that here in a moment. Peace is bringing Christ and his cross to bear in a relationship so that whatever differences you may have pale compared to what you agree on. Whatever differences you might have pale compared to what you agree on. So the result is a wholeness and a completeness and a shalom with a people. The result is a wholeness and completeness and a shalom with other people like you've never experienced. It lands you in a place where you can gather with a people and be part of a people with different backgrounds and even values, yet have the most central reality in common. One family might homeschool. We'll get personal here in a minute. One family might homeschool, and another family might be very involved in the public school system, and yet they have Christ in common, so there is stark breakout One family might adopt a row of kids. Another family might give birth to a row of kids. And yet another might not have any children. And yet, all together, if they have Christ in common, there is stark breakout 
peace. One family might be into sports. Another might be into academics. Another might be into projects. Yet if they have Christ in common, there is stark peace. One family might eat organic food. And one family might eat fast food. One family might have alcohol in the home. And another family might be teetotalers. One family might have guns in the home. And another family might hate guns. One family might travel a lot, while another family might just sit around Greenville watching TV and going to Walmart every day. One family might have a beautiful yard, and another family might have a couch in their front yard. But if they have Christ in common, there is severe and stark and attractive and wonderful shalom, because Christ is the prince of it. Do you hear that? Man, churches go south whenever other things are elevated above Christ. Man. Man. Talking about some horizontal peace right there when Christ is at the center of it. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I get goosebumps thinking about that. It sounds great to me. I love it. That reality has inspired me for years. It inspires me this morning as I preach it. It inspired me this week as I studied it. But we're going to have to be real honest in the next few minutes. We have to be real honest with the reality that making or maintaining peace, ironically, may actually cause division and may actually cause conflict. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. As you're turning there, I'm going to read sort of a parallel passage from Luke, and then we're going to look together at Matthew chapter 10. This is where, it's where we put on our big boy pants, okay, and big girl pants. Luke chapter 12 says this. You stay in Matthew chapter 10. I'll tell you why. We'll come back there in a second. But Luke chapter 12, verse 51 says this, actually verse 49, I have come to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. I was talking with Christy about this this week. I was like, man, isn't it crazy that the prince of peace that's prophesied by Isaiah 700 years before Christ shows up, Christ shows up and says, you think I've come to bring breakout peace? I haven't come to bring breakout peace. I've come to bring division. Weird, right? This is where we put on our big old pants. Listen to the Matthew chapter 10 version, beginning in verse 34. Do not think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. This is coming from the Prince of Peace. 
If you like things nice and tidy with a little bow and a nice little Rubbermaid compartments, then you're just going crazy right now. And I've been there. I get it. But let's listen. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me isn't worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You know, I could say, whoever loves the absence of conflict more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What a massive teaching. What a complicated teaching. I told you we spent a large amount of time in the book of John. And it's only through dining on large sections of Scripture that this is coming to focus for me. And the problem is, the reason that, that, that these things are so out of focus for, I think, a lot of Christians is because we don't view it in large sections of Scripture. Our so preaching for most of our life has been sort of cherry-picking passages that sort of sugar-stick sermons. Ooh, that makes me feel good. Mm, that'll make them feel good. That'll be easy to preach. <laughs> passages like this we don't often deal with. Listen to this. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Listen to this example in John chapter 6. Don't turn there. I just want you to listen. You can jot down the passage, though, if you want to. I want to know where I am. John chapter 6. Jesus feeds the multitudes. It's a great moment. After he's fed the multitudes, they want to make him king. And his disciples are like, yes. It's about time. He's going to be made king. And Jesus says, nope. They want the wrong kind of king. So y'all get in the boat. Y'all go across the Sea of Galilee. I'll meet you in Capernaum. And it's during the night there that they, they're in the storm-tossed boat, and they see Jesus high-stepping the high seas, and they're all scared. You know, they were sore afraid. You know that passage? That's really afraid. Sore afraid. And Jesus says, oh, it is I. He actually says in the original language, I am. And then he gets in the boat, and then all of a sudden, just like that, they're on the other side. And then the crowds gather around in John chapter 6, and they're asking him, they're like, Shazam, how did you get here? That's amazing. Jesus, I have a question for you. How did you get here? And Jesus doesn't even answer their question. He says, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. All right, the sermon's starting out a little rough. He's getting a little bit at odds with them right off the bat. The disciples are thinking, whoa, Jesus, take it easy. They wanted to make you king yesterday. Don't undo that. <laughs> Jesus says, you, your belly's led you here. Not here because you really want me. So they asked him, they said, okay, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, singular, that you believe in him whom he has sent. He goes on to say that he is the bread of God and it is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He goes on further to say, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. He's developing this picture of him being the bread of life. He's just fed them with food and now he's wanting to say, now I'm your food. Let's hear how they respond. Verse 41, the Jews 
grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Huh. He's got this teaching that's really difficult for them to hear and understand. And in verse 44, he says something that we've found difficult to understand. And we've had people in our church in the past few years say, I'm bailing on that. I can't hear that. I can't stand to hear this notion. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Unthinkable. I don't like that sort of language. And they responded the same way. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us flesh to eat? It goes on to say, when many of his disciples heard what he's saying, that you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, or you have no part of me, many of his disciples heard it, and they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, these are his disciples. These are people who are following him. They're grumbling about it. He asks them, do you take offense to this? Then he goes on to say, no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. And the next verse says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus, that revival didn't go so well. (laughs) They're supposed to follow you. Your sermons are resulting in people leaving you. What's up with that? Chapter 8 is another version of the same thing. Chapter 8 starts out well. The woman that's caught in adultery is delivered. And then Jesus starts preaching on being the light of the world. Hint, hint, wink, wink. I'm the light of the world. He could have said, the one Isaiah prophesied 700 years ago about, that one. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. So far, this revival's going well. By verse 30, as he's saying these things, many believed in him. It's awesome. They have the little cards out with those little pencils that are never sharp enough, and they're sitting on the front row, and they're scribbling their names out. I mean, I decided to follow Jesus today. I love him. On the eighth stanza of just as I am, I'm giving it up. And they're filling out the little cards, and Jesus keeps on talking. And the disciples are getting uncomfortable again. Jesus, stop talking. You're messing up every one of these revivals. And Jesus then says, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And that pushed some buttons. The absence of conflict would have said, let's just leave it off right there. But he brings the truth to bear in this situation. He says, if you don't abide in me, you're not mine. But if you abide in me, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And you start talking freedom to a bunch of people who had been in slavery and they get mad about it and say, we've never been slaves. What are you talking about? Forgetting about their time in Egypt? Forgetting about the Assyrians? Forgetting about Babylon? How dare you imply that we're not Free And this revival goes so south that by the end of it, in verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Another revival gone bad. They dropped their little pencils that aren't sharp enough and started looking for rocks. Where's my rock? He made me so mad. I was believing in him a little while ago, but he made me mad. 
He implied that I have no righteousness of my own. He implied that I can't bring anything but filthy rags to him. He implied that on my best day, I still need a Savior. Absolutely and utterly and completely, where's my rock? Where's the kumbaya? Where's the absence of conflict? What I want to tell you right now is that right there, as crazy as that looks, they're on their way to peace for some. They're on the way to peace for some. For some are going to hear that message and go, you know what? You're right on my best day. I need a Savior utterly and completely on my best day. Like he said over there in Matthew 10. I love it, what he said. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You got to die. The problem is a bunch of people in that crowd weren't ready to die. They count him their everything. And you know what it made? It made division. It's a theme throughout the book of John and a theme that I never recognized. John chapter 7, verse 43. So there was a division among the people over him. John chapter 9, verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Another passage, John chapter 10, verse 19. There was again a division among the the Jews because of these words. Man, we have like a weird storybook level of understanding of what Jesus did and what he brings. This weird Michael Bolton thing where he's got this nice zipper hairdo and he's long flowing robes and he's all about peace and love, not realizing that he hacks some people off. Do you think that we could possibly bear his message and not experience some of the same thing? He says the servant's not above his master. How could you possibly expect that you're going to experience kumbaya, coke, and a song? You bring me to bear. You might experience the absence of conflict, but that's no promise. But you will experience some peace because they're different. Man, Christ and his message of complete and necessary and absolute dependence on him and his righteousness and total abandon in following him is not widely received, people. It's not widely received by lost people, and there are times where found people don't want to hear it. Do you know that? I've seen it in you. There are times where I don't want to hear it. I wish horizontal peace, horizontal peace was as tidy and straightforward and sure as vertical. But it's not. Man, I wish it was. People of God, we need a childlike optimism about the possibility for shalom because the cross is that able. But we need an adult-like perspective on the reality of it then not everybody's up for it. Lost people and oftentimes, not oftentimes, sometimes found people. No thanks. Tell me how great I am. Make much of me. Man, not all are up for a message of absolute and complete and utter dependence on Christ. I heard an interview this morning that Rick Warren did with Pierce Morgan. 
where Pierce is recommending that we amend the Bible. We should amend the Constitution and amend the Bible is what he says. Amend the Constitution for gun stuff. That's, that's not what I'm talking about right now, but amend the Bible on the homosexuality stuff. Just amend it. <laughs> There's no absolute truth in that approach. I become absolute. And if, if absolute truth becomes what I think it is, that's going to change from day to day or week to week. It might change according to my mood. Not everybody's up for an absolute truth and an absolute and utter dependence on something and someone completely and absolutely outside of them. And I'm going to tell you what, too, not all, not all are up for maintaining peace of those that are found. I thought about Paul's Demas. You can read about it, D-E-M-A-S. Read about Paul's Demas. Just do a little search. Read about John's Diotrephes. Diotrephes. Look it up. Read it. I thought about the churches in Revelation. They're Nicolaitans. Read about the Nicolaitans. I thought about their Jezebels. I thought about those that are throughout our Bible that their names may not be mentioned, but there are people behind these thoughts, those who are divisive. Remove the divisive person from among us. Who do you think he's talking about? He's talking about people within the church. Not everybody's up for peace. Nobody, not everybody's up for maintaining it. Remove the bitter who have a root of bitterness that defiles many. Who do you think he's talking about there? He's talking about people within the church. There are people within the church that are not up for maintaining peace because they're about undermining or maybe they're false teachers. That happens in the church. We're not just not talking about something that's about lost people. We're talking about found people too. A lot of times they don't want to deal with Christ being brought to bear as the ultimate reality where all things else that we might have in different pale in comparison to that ultimate thing that we have in common. Not everybody's up for that. Some people say, you know what? The differences that we have, they're bigger than that thing we do have in common. I'll acknowledge we have Christ in common, but what I have, the problem I have with you is bigger than that. So I'm gone. Man, it happens. If it hasn't happened to you yet, keep following Christ. Keep walking with a people, a church, and it will. I promise you. That's why we're putting on our big boy pants this morning. The kid, the, the pull-ups, okay, the pull-ups, was the, where, where, I, where I stopped there, I said, I wish this is all where we could end, the Ephesians 2 reality, that it's possible. If we lived in that, we'd be wearing pull-ups. We'd have to wear them because we'd soil ourselves every few hours when something like this goes south. We wouldn't know what to do. But we put on our big boy pants because we know we want to have a childlike optimism in the possibilities of the gospel, but we want to have adult-like understanding of the realities that not everybody's up for it. Lost and found. Now, here's where we're going to end the message. This is the good news. You've been like, man, this has kind of been hard this morning. I, I put it at the top of my notes this morning that the point of this message this morning is joyful yet sober. Optimistic yet realistic. What we've been talking about so far has been very sober and very realistic. But we're going to end in Isaiah chapter 9. Go back there. Here's the good encouragement. Here's the encouragement that I needed so bad I cannot even describe to you how bad I needed that. This. 
these last couple of weeks. I find myself in a place where I personally own division. I personally own division. If someone leaves our church, which in the last 10 years, you have to know that that's happened at this church. If you're visiting, you're like, maybe we found a church where nobody's ever left. Keep looking. Keep looking. And some of you have been here long enough to know that people leave. I take it personally. The funny thing for me is when people say, man, don't take it personally. And I'm like, well, you wanted it to be personal when your grandma died. You wanted it to be personal when your kid was sick and needed prayer. You want me to prepare sermons week after week after week with you in view. You want me to be very personal in counseling you in your marital situations, but when you just up and leave, you don't want me to take it personal? It's all personal. Every bit of it. And I wear it. And it beats me down. Anybody that's in ministry knows that anchor that you often drag mm, of people that have left and you think, I failed. So a message like this goes, okay, well, maybe I didn't. Maybe it was just the truth that they didn't like. Maybe they didn't want to maintain unity in the bond of peace. Maybe they just said talk to the hand and it didn't have anything to do with me. And here's where I was encouraged these last couple of weeks. And I'm going to tell you what, this was like wind. I, I said a couple of weeks ago, Christy's the wind beneath my wings. Well, the last couple, she still is, but this was the wind beneath my wings also. And it's just so beautifully applied. We just worked slowly through verses Verse 6, but verse 7, listen what happens. The Prince of Peace is going to be given in this context of darkness and gloom. The Prince of Peace, and listen what he says. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Now, at first, I'm reading that going, okay, of the increase of his government... There will be no end and of peace. And what I realized is that of is connected to each of those things. The increase has to do with his government and the increase has to do with peace. No matter how much division I see, no matter how much I experience, no matter how much I struggle with, no matter the anchor that I carry behind me, I can know that the kingdom of heaven, as it says in Matthew chapter 19, is like leaven, leavening the loaf. It's marching onward. I don't have to see it to know that it's marching onward like a mustard seed that's wee, but that grows into a big tree. It's always growing. I read this passage and I said, yes, the increase of his government is increasing. That's encouraging. The increase of his peace, there will be no end. And I said, yes, I can continue to do this another 10 years. I'll drag the anchor knowing that peace is advancing like leaven and it doesn't stop. I'll keep preaching another 10 I'll keep shepherding another 10, knowing that some of you will be on my heart someday, on the anchor, knowing that there's more of those where peace is breaking out than those that are becoming anchors. Yes, I needed 
this encouragement, the increase of this, his government and his peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness, with this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I needed that word too, zeal. He's not half-hearted about this either. Our God is wholehearted, zealous about the advancement of his kingdom and the advancement of peace. Whatever my eyes may tell me, I'm not to walk by sight, I'm to walk by faith. Man, my evidence, my assurance needs to come for what's hoped for, what's not seen. And I can't see leaven, but I know it's advancing. I can't see peace, but I know it's advancing. Man, that's good medicine for me. For those of you who have your share of the conflict in whatever form, knowing that peace is advancing, it's got to be an encouragement. That's got to be what fuels us. We've got to continue to be about his work, knowing that he's doing more good than whatever difficulties I might be seeing. He's advancing. The point of Advent these last few weeks is sort of to prepare us to climb, by climbing into the skin of those who waited for the Christ child to sort of wait with them and to celebrate his coming and for us celebrating that on the 25th. Here on the Sunday after the 25th, what I want you to do in these next few minutes as we take the supper is I want us together to wait and anticipate his return. And as we take the supper in these next few minutes, to enjoy knowing the reality that while we wait, that the mustard seed is growing. While we wait, leaven is advancing. While we wait, the increase of his government and of peace is ever marching forward. So we wait, hopefully, we wait anticipating his return, knowing that he's moving. He's at work. It's advancing. Let's pray and we'll distribute the elements. God, I'm so thankful for medicine on um, pain, confusion, heartache. I'm so thankful that you are uniting Jew and Gentile, man and woman, black and white, rich and poor, homeschooling, public schooling, organic eating, fast food eating. I'm so thankful that you are uniting and building a people that have more in common in Christ than any differences we have or will ever have. I'm thankful, too, that we can walk in a peace that's already earned and that our job now is just to maintain it. Lord, may we ever be about this work, even at the cost of our own lives. Lord, I pray that this meal will be a weekly reminder for us of how expensive peace was. That we'll be encouraged 
that we'll be hopeful, that we'll be anticipating together Christ's return. We love you so much, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Something I want you to enjoy in this meal in the next couple minutes is that we take a common meal. It is the picture of what I've been talking about these last however long this has been. The fact that we take a common meal together and that common meal represents Christ and his blood, his body and his blood. The, the fact that it's a common meal, that every single mouth in here that's a believing mouth is taking of the same food. That's the, this is the image of the unity that we have that was earned through the cross. And that's why if you're crossways with a brother, you shouldn't take this. Or you should at least pursue peace before you take this. If you've pursued peace and haven't found it, stay after it. Take this in the meantime, though. It's fuel and nourishment. Let's take and eat and drink in faith. Also from Isaiah, and they shall beat their swords in the plowshares and their spears in the pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's a, also from Isaiah, a prophetic picture of what this will eventually be. But this is moving in that direction. It's not there yet, but it, man, it's moving. It's advancing. I hope you're encouraged this morning, whatever conflict you might be going through, whatever you might be trying to make sense of, um, that like 11 pieces breaking out. And to be about pursuing, bringing the cross to bear, even if you face difficulty, to press on, to trust it, to trust that he's moving forward. I was humbled by your attentiveness this morning, even the little kids, the little kids that were in here this morning, you guys did a good job. I know it's a long time to sit, and uh, y'all did a really good job, so I'm thankful. Y'all stand, and I'll dismiss us in prayer. Parents, y'all did a good job, too, with the little ones. I know there's a little bit of wrestling going on, and prayer, and deep uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth on the inside. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that we walk in a peace with you, that we are fully whole with our Creator. We're thankful, too, that among the people of God that we can walk fully whole and complete with your people as well. We're thankful that the cross is that able. We enjoy that power and that reality right now as we've spent these last few minutes together enjoying your table, too, the crowning moment, enjoying a shared meal of a shared Lord enjoying and remembering a shared work. Pray that this week that we'll walk with a shared spirit, reading a shared word, and enjoying a very seated and reigning and ruling Lord. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Thanks, y'all.